Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 193. Michael, Filaret, Alexis, and Fyodor. Today's episode will cover the reigns of three czars. The first Romanovs, Michael, Alexis, and Fyodor, along with Patriarch Filaret, Michael's father. My reason for this is that these leaders after the time of troubles, had to face similar challenges. Recovering from the most challenging time in Russian history was their primary focus. The three czars were also responsible for laying the groundwork for Peter the Great's reforms. While I'll be discussing the time of troubles next episode, I want to talk about it here briefly. It was a period known as the Smutnoi Vremya in Russian between the accession of Boris Gudunov to the Muscovite throne in 1598 until the election of Michael Romanov in 1613. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to argue that it was a longer period of time and it started earlier than 1598. But I don't want to get into that. Next time, I'm already writing the script for that episode. When Fyodor I, the son of Ivan the Terrible, died in 1598 without an heir, it marked the end of the Rurik line, which began in the year 862. Ivan's reign had wiped out a broad swath of boyars, which, with the Tsar's death, led to a destabilized country. We also have to understand that the land we now call Russia was not really in existence, at least not to the people of the 17th century. It was referred to as the Muscovite state, with central authority based, obviously, in Moscow. The Apanage great princes of old were now, for the most part, gone. So with the extinction of the old dynasty, a void was created, a vacuum which almost led to the destruction of the future Russian state. In 1613, with pressure being exerted on the Muscovite state by the Poles and Sweden, a new Zemsky Sobor was convened to pick a new leader, but more importantly, a new dynasty to take control. The selection of the Romanovs as the new family in charge was really not surprising. We should remember that the first wife of Ivan the Terrible, Anastasia Romanov, was loved by the people as she had such a calming effect on her husband. Nikita Romanov, Anastasia's brother, defended many of Ivan's victims. We will soon meet his son in a bit, Michael's father, Metropolitan and soon-to-be patriarch Filaret. This relationship to the old dynasty was a major reason for the July 21, 1613 coronation Michael Romanov as Tsar of Russia. He was only 16 and was placed in charge of as Ryazanovsky and Steinberg put it in a book, The History of Russia, quote, Michael Romanov assumed power over a devastated country with the capital itself, as well as a number of other towns, burned down. The treasury was empty, and financial collapse of the state appeared complete. And Astrahan Zorutsky, who had Marina Minzish and his little felon in his camp, rallied the Cossacks and other malcontents, continuing the story of pretenders and social rebellion so characteristic of the time of troubles. Many roaming bands, some of the several thousand strong, continued looting the land. 
Moreover, Muscovy remained at war with Poland and Sweden, which had seized respectively Smolensk and Novgorod, as well as other Russian territory, and promoted their own candidates to the Muscovy throne, Prince Vyadislav and Prince Philip. To be honest, Michael was not in charge, except as a figurehead. But his importance to the resurrection and survival of the Muscovite state and to the future of Russia should not be diminished. The Russian people now had someone to follow, someone to pin their hopes on, someone to rally behind when the going got tough. Luckily for Michael, his father, the soon-to-be-named Patriarch Filaret, returned from his imprisonment in Poland to become the de facto head of state in 1619. Tsar Michael, to be very honest, was a weak person, or as my late Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, claimed, he was a simple-minded man who liked to play with clocks. A little bit of background on Filaret. The story, you can almost think of it as a comedy-slash-drama. His original name was Fyodor, and his wife's name, Zhenya. In 1598, they lost a power struggle with Boris Gudunov and were exiled to Siberia. While there, they had to take religious vows. She became the nun Martha, and he the monk Filaret. Things were pretty bleak until a false Dmitri took control of Moscow. You know, we'll meet him in the next episode. The false Dmitri named Filaret the Metropolitan of Rostov, but things deteriorated with the death of the first false Dmitri, which led to the imprisonment of Filaret in a Polish jail while he was part of a Russian delegation. Well, the years of Michael's reign were marked with numerous peace treaties with Poland, Sweden, and the Ottomans. His ministers also kept devising ways to beef up the treasury through taxes and the occasional loans from the wealthy Stroganov family. When Michael died in 1645 at the age of 48, the country's finances were still in dire straits. He had been at the stern of the country for 32 years. Michael's father, Filaret, had died in 1633 at the age of 80. His dynamic character had steered the country through especially rough times. The Muscovite state was still fragile, but at least it was somewhat stable. The Treaty of Stolbova between Sweden and Russia in 1617 brought Novgorod back into the Muscovite sphere of influence, but at the cost of the access to the Baltic Sea. It also relieved some pressure on the Russians, relief that would allow it to rebuild its military, devastated by the time of troubles. In 1632, with Poland involved in the Thirty Years' War in Europe, which we reviewed a few episodes ago, Russia tried to recapture lost land using forced mercenaries. This proved disastrous as the mercenaries were very expensive as they were being used throughout Europe and that the weapons designed were costly as well. The Muscovite government was in no way able, no way able to bear these costs, so the land grab failed. Now, when I mentioned in the past uh, few episodes that we have one of the 30 years war, I kind of misspoke a little bit. It's actually in part of my uh, new podcast, well, somewhat new, it's already 37 episodes, and called Battleground History, where one of the episodes did indeed go over the Thirty Years' War. And I would really highly suggest uh, you know, heading on over there and listening to that, because it does have some uh, importance in the history of Russia. Now, 
To try to fund the military buildup of Russia, taxes were increased, none quite so unpopular than the salt tax. The salt riot in Moscow of 1648 served as an example of how much the population hated this tax in particular. As the foreign observer Olearius noted, quote, A year later, it was necessary to calculate how many thousands had been lost on salt fish, used in Russia more than meat, that spoiled because it was not properly preserved, was sold, I mean, much less salt was sold than before, and remaining in the packing houses, it turned into brine and dribbled away. A group that benefited from this militarization of Russia was the Strelsi. They were usually a part-time ragtag band of poorly educated Russian peasants. But with the high expense of foreign mercenaries, they become a more economically feasible alternative. As Jeffrey Hoskins puts it in his book, Russia and the Russians, A History, quote, Russia was becoming a physical military state to an even greater extent than any other in Europe. Its whole social structure was determined by the need to recruit soldiers, to levy taxes, and to impose state service of various kinds. On a slightly different subject, what I found interesting in my research into this period was the fact that no maps were drawn or created even during the 17th century. Additionally, the hand-drawn maps of a period known as the Great Draft of 1598 to 1600, they vanished. The only maps of that era were drawn by foreigners. Interestingly, there's no reason given for this anomaly that I could find in all my research, but yet it happened. Now let's go back. I'm going to change subjects again. So Michael, you know, he needed a wife. The first one he chose through careful consideration was Maria Klopova. She was not from a very high-standing family, which caused jealousy throughout the court. Needless to say, she was uh, poisoned before they married, and her family banished to Siberia. Michael's next bride died during childbirth a year after the marriage. The second wife, the third potential bride, was one Eudoxia Streshneva, who quickly bore the Tsar a son in 1629. Michael had only one son, Alexis, who was 16 when he was coronated Tsar. This was a precarious situation as childhood mortality rates were pretty high back then. Luckily, Alexis was a healthy child, and his long reign of 31 years was to build further stability into the ever-expanding state. Nicholas II was to view Alexis as the epitome of Romanov rule 250 years later. Alexis's reign was also the real beginning of the westernization of Russia something his son Peter would accelerate in the future. We will also see the first new legal code in almost 100 years, known as the Olgenia of 1649. This legal code greatly benefited the gentry and the nobles, but it was disastrous for the serfs. While it was already an established institution under the Kievan era, and further entrenched under Ivan the Terrible and Boris Godunov, during the Time of Troubles, it became fully developed and codified with the Olozhny of 1649. There were no more limitations on the recovery of fugitive serfs. The serf was now tied to the land, as were their children. They were truly slaves. 
as Ryazanovsky and Steinberg put it, quote, once a serf, always a serf. They would go further to say, quote, their obligations undefined. The serfs were at the mercy of the landlords, who came to exercise increasing judicial and police authority on their estates. By the end of the century, the buying, selling, and willing of serfs had developed. That is, they were treated virtually as slaves. Alexis was to have two wives, the first being Maria Miloslavskaya, but she died in childbirth. Oh, wait, I forgot one detail. She did die during giving birth to their 14th child in 1669. Things weren't all bad as Alexis remarried in less than a year to a woman over 20 years younger than he was, Natalia Narishkina. She would give birth to a baby boy named Peter. Moving on, there is another significant development during the reign of Tsar Alexis, and that is the beginning of the assimilation of Ukraine into Muscovite Russia. After the removal of the Mongol yoke, Ukraine came under the greater and greater influence of Catholic Poland. Many Ukrainians, and in particular Cossacks, remained Orthodox. This harks back to the days of Kievan Rus. After the time of troubles from 1624 to about 1638, a number of revolts and insurrections broke out throughout Ukraine. By 1648, a new leader emerged in Ukraine, Bogdan Klemenetsky. He appealed to Tsar Alexis for support in a joining of peoples under Moscow. Now, some Ukrainian historians dispute this, but it is more than likely to be true to some extent. In 1654, a Ukrainian Rada, also known as an assembly, was given three choices. Join Poland, ally themselves with the Ottoman Turks, or join Moscow. They chose their Orthodox brethren. Alexis was hesitant as he felt that by accepting Ukraine into the fold, it might precipitate war with Poland and perhaps even with the Turks. This was something that Muscovy could ill afford at this dangerous juncture in their history. Luckily for Tsar Alexis, a war with Poland did break out. But Sweden intervened on the Russian side, which led to the Treaty of Andrusova. This gave Moscow western Ukraine and Kiev in the east. Wars against Sweden and the Turks later on solidified the gains. Under Alexis and his son Fyodor, Muscovy expanded with incredible speed. Toward the west, though, it was kind of slow growth, expanding its borders a couple hundred miles. It was to the east, through Siberia, where the land expansion exploded. In just 30 years, between 1610 and 1640, the border expanded over 3,000 miles westward. I mean, that's like the entire United States, to think about that. Muscovy was now becoming Russia. Another crisis struck during the reign of Alexis, and it revolved around religion. The schism, known as the Raskol, was due to the reforms of Patriarch Nikon. Over the previous centuries, deviations from the original Greek Orthodox rituals and texts crept into the Russian church services. 
Were there significant issues similar to the causes of the split between the Protestants and the Catholics? Was it like the difference between the Shiites and the Sunnis in the Islamic world? Not even close. Some of the differences seem incredibly petty to us today. One was using three fingers instead of two in the signing of the cross. Another was saying hallelujah three times instead of twice during liturgical services. But to some people of the time, mainly the peasants, the changes were blasphemous. They even believed that Patriarch Nikon was the Antichrist. These people were to become the old believers, a movement that actually continues on to this day. What is interesting is that the newly incorporated Ukrainians were the least likely to be an old believer. One explanation was that they were far better educated. Another reason that has been proposed is that they had closer ties to Western Europe than their Muscovite brethren. In Muscovite Russia, returning to Ryazanovsky and Steinberg, quote, It has been estimated that between 1672 and 1691, over 20,000 of them, the old believers, burned themselves alive in 37 known communal conflagrations. Wow. One of the leaders of the old believers was a priest. Martin Sixsmith, in his book, Russia, A Thousand-Year Chronicle of the Wild East, writes, quote, When the old believers were declared heretics and excommunicated en masse, the spirit of rage and resentment came close to revolution and had found a remarkable spokesman in a fiery priest from Nizhny Novgorod called Avakum Petrov. He quotes the priest from his autobiography, quote, What we need to do is spit on all those newfangled rituals and books, and then all will be well. As to my excommunication, it came from heretics, so in Christ's name I trample it underfoot. And the curse they put on me? I won't miss words. I wipe my arse with it. Sixsmith goes on further, quote, As students, we all loved Avakum's autobiography because it was full of such pithy, vigorous put-downs. There's plenty of straight talk about sex and descriptions of his opponents as shit-faced Pharisees wiping their backsides with hellfire, all expressed in a laconic, down-to-earth brand of old Russian. But as I read it now, I see what a marvelous document the life of Avakum is, and what a remarkable man he was. When Tsar Alexis began to crack down on the schismatics with the cooperation of the official church under its patriarch Nikon, Avakum and his family were banished to Siberia. In his life, Avakum recounts on how for 14 years they were imprisoned in a pit dug into frozen earth. Now here's another bit of trivia which I uncovered about Russia and in particular about the elite boyar class. In most of Europe, a nobleman would have had his name attached to a piece of land such as the Duke of Sussex or the Earl of Pembroke. This was not the case of Russia during the 17th century. In the days of Kiev and Rus, we had the Prince of Smolensk or Chernigov, but not so in post-Ivan the Terrible Muscovy. Even after eight years of studying Russian history for this podcast, I still keep on coming up with these fascinating facts. Now, before we say goodbye to Alexis and Fyodor, 
I would be remiss if I forgot to mention the major, major rebellion that threatened the state. It was led by one of my favorite names in Russian history, Stenka Razin. And it was in 1670 and 1671 that he rebelled. I covered him in episode 125, so I'm going to a lot of detail here. Needless to say, Tsar Alexis handled it, crushing the rebellion and executing Razin. There wouldn't be another revolt of this size to hit Russia until the reign of Catherine the Great. That upheaval was known as the Pugachev Rebellion of 1773-74. to Razin's rebellion drew almost 200,000 followers at its apex. When he was executed in Red Square, the people refused the official order to rejoice. 300 years later, poet Evgeny Yevtushenko wrote about him and the execution of Stenka Razin. Why, good folk, are you not celebrating? Caps in the sky and dance. But Red Square is frozen stiff. The halberds scarcely swing amid the deadly silence. The square had understood something. The square took off their caps, and the bell struck three times with rage. But the heavy from its blood forelock the head still rocking, still alive, from the blood-wet place of execution, there where the poor were, hoarsely the head spoke, I have not died in vain, and savagely, not hiding anything of his triumph, Stenka's head burst out laughing at the Tsar. Tsar Alexis died in 1676 at the age of 47, with his successor being his son, Fyodor II, by his first wife. His six-year reign was to be the most undistinguished one, but with one significant accomplishment being the abolition of Mestnichestvo. This old and defective system of service appointments to the state was a remnant of the Apanage era of Kievan Rus. It was abolished in 1682, the year of the death of Fyodor. This set up Peter the Great, to completely reform Russian society and the government. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time, which I hope is a much shorter time gap than between this and the last episode, when I take you on a tour of the time of troubles and the reigns of Boris Gudnov and Fyodor I, the son of Ivan the Terrible. I'm also going to do a episode after that of one of the greatest authors of Russian history, Boris Pasternak, the author of the one book we all have heard of, Dr. Zhivago. So thank you for listening, and as always, Das Vidania y Spasiba Bolshoya.